Father, that is our prayer this morning, that we would open your word in such a way that we would see our amazing Savior, that we would see Jesus Christ, we would see our need for him, we would see his love for us, we would see his magnificent splendor on display, we would see his kindness towards sin. God, we ask that you would reveal your glory through the preaching and proclamation of your word so that every heart would confess that you are Lord. To the glory of the Father, only by the power of the Spirit, we pray in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and a huge, huge uh, just thank you for Uh, tuning in for uh, sharing this link for all of your friends, for all of your family, for encouraging them, for uh, just inviting them to be a part of our study through the book of Habakkuk. It has been an amazing, amazing time. Thank you so much for uh, Sam and for Michaela and for Kyle, uh, for their leadership, for their just being involved in everything that's going on and making it happen. It would not be happening if it weren't for them and for their faithfulness and their excellence. So a huge, huge thank you. Uh, to them. If you guys have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and take it and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 is where we are going to be this morning. Habakkuk chapter 2. While you're turning there, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I've had this on multiple occasions. Maybe you've had it with a spouse. Maybe you've had it with a friend. You're watching a specific TV show or a specific movie. You've been just totally engrossed in the storyline, totally engrossed in the narrative of the episodes that are going on, and you just cannot wait to see the next episode. And so this has happened a couple times in my life because I am not very patient. So I will go ahead and watch the next episode before Hannah has seen it. And then when we get back together, I rewatch that episode as if I hadn't watched it in the first place. And I say, oh, wow, this is amazing. I didn't know that this was going to be happening. I don't know if you've experienced that. I don't know if you've encountered that situation where you just say, hey, I I cannot wait to move on to see this thing, so I'm going to watch it, and then you rewatch it. If you've ever done that before, then you know the rewatching of that episode or the rewatching of that movie, it's not as suspenseful the second time around, right? You know the twists, the turns, you know the plot line, you know everything that's happening, so it's not as suspenseful the second time around. The reality is that everything that you and I are going through is an episode that God's already seen. It's not suspenseful to him because he's already seen it. Tomorrow is not something that God is worried about. Tomorrow is actually a place where he currently is. Our God isn't taken by surprise or off guard when something happens. He knows all. As we've said before, he doesn't drive an ambulance coming in after the wreck has happened, frantically trying to put things back together again. So the question is not, does God see, does God know, does God care? We know emphatically, biblically, even as we've studied this book together, we know God sees, he's sovereign, we know he cares, he loves us, we know these things about our God. So the real question is, will you trust him? Will you trust him? Faith isn't knowing Faith is knowing the one who does know. Faith isn't knowing everything that's going to happen. Faith is knowing the one who does know. And the section before us this morning is all about faith. It's all about trusting the one who knows, the one who cares, the one who sees, and the one who loves. So let's read this section together. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. You remember... Uh, For sake of context, Habakkuk had been lamenting what was going on in Judah. And then God responds to his lament. God says, I'm going to discipline my own people, and I'm going to use Babylon to do that. And Habakkuk responds in a second lament. God, I don't like that response. I don't like the way that you are going to go about disciplining Judah. We have a problem, but that's an even bigger problem. And the cure for what's ailing us is worse than the ailment itself. 
But you remember last week, Habakkuk stations himself on the ramparts, on the walls, as it were, saying, I'm not moving, I'm not going anywhere until you respond back to me. Because number one, I know you're going to respond. I have hope you're going to respond because you responded after my first lament. But secondly, I know I'm not seeing everything correctly. I know I'm wrong in things. So I'm going to wait to see what you will say in reproof to me. You're going to correct me, and I know that that's coming. So he waits after his second lament to hear God respond. And this is God's gracious response. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets so that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all the peoples. Father, this is, this is the most important portion of Habakkuk. This is the theme verse of Habakkuk. This is the message of Habakkuk. And this is the message of the whole Bible. This is the message that the New Testament writers take this verse and they quote it several times in the New Testament to say this is the message of everything that the Bible is about. Everything that God stands for is that the just, the righteous will live by their faith. Faith is what produces righteousness. Faith is what produces justification. And so, God, we are going to plunge into deep realities this morning. We're going to plunge into practical realities. We're going to plunge into glorious truths. And we will not be able to see them, understand them, or discern them apart from your help, apart from your spirit. So, Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, please open our eyes to see. Open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear so that while hearing, we would actually hear and not be like the Pharisees who hear but don't hear or the Pharisees who see and don't see. Help us to see, to perceive, to understand, to spiritually appraise as it were, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to understand the things of the Lord only by the power of the Holy Spirit. We rely on Him. We depend on Him. We renounce all self-reliance and self-dependence. And we throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Please work through your amazing Holy Spirit. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we are going to see three life-altering realities. Three life-altering realities. I do not think it's an overstatement to say these are paradigm-shattering Realities. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that these are destiny-changing realities. If you understand these three realities, your entire life will change. If you miss it on these three realities, you will miss the entire purpose and point of life. You will live through life without satisfaction. You will live through life without any aim, without any goal, without any purpose, without any direction. If you don't understand these three purposes and principles and plans of God as given to us in his word, then ultimately your eternal destiny will be one without God. These three points, these three uh, clear, clearly defined and clearly understood principles in God's word that we're going to see this morning, I, it's not an overstatement to say that these are eternal destiny changing principles. So I just, I encourage you to, to look at these verses with me, to dive in with me, and really even as we're studying to pray and to ask God to open your eyes to see these things, and not only to see them, but to cherish and treasure them. The demons believe that God exists, right? James tells us that. They know there is a God. They know he's the only way to be saved. They know these realities about God, but they don't treasure them. They don't love him. They don't commit their life to him. They don't follow him. They don't want to be with him. They hate him. And so let's pray together, even as we're studying these three principles, even as we study them, let's pray 
that God would awaken in us a love for him, a love for these principles, and that we would cherish him through these things. Point number one, God's word is trustworthy and cannot fail. God's word is trustworthy and cannot fail. His word, we can trust it, and it will not fail us. It is not able to fail us. It can't fail us. This is verses 2 and 3. The Lord responds in verse 2 to Habakkuk. This is, this is glorious. The Lord does not need to respond. He does not need to condescend to come near to Habakkuk, but he does. He loves Habakkuk. He loves you as you are lamenting in your uh, posture of humility and laying prostrate before the Lord saying, help God, I don't understand. In your posture of humility, he comes close to you, comes near to you. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's near to Habakkuk. He answers Habakkuk. And notice, in this answer, there is no rebuke. There's no rebuke. Habakkuk's lament was not sinful. It was not wrong of Habakkuk to bring these things to God. Because if it were, God would be saying in this response, hey, by the way, you shouldn't have said what you said. But God doesn't say that. God brings no rebuke. Now, we don't know how long it takes for the Lord to answer, but we know that he answers. Maybe it takes days, weeks, months, who knows? But as Habakkuk waits in verse 1, the Lord answers. And he says this. He says, record the vision. So he's going to give a revelation of himself to Habakkuk, and he tells Habakkuk to write it down. This is God's word being written down. We actually have what Habakkuk wrote down in the book of Habakkuk. So what God is going to tell Habakkuk is true, not only about the book of Habakkuk, but it's true about the Bible, about God's word. So I want to give you five realities about God's word inside of this first point, that God's word is trustworthy and it's true and it can be trusted and it will not fail us. Five realities about God's word as seen by God's revelation of himself to Habakkuk. Number one, God's word is from God, not from man. God's word is from God not from man. God says, record the vision. I'm giving you a vision. I'm giving you my word, and I'm giving you a vision of what's going to take place. Record it down. Write it down. This is not Habakkuk thinking of things about God, Habakkuk making up the Bible. This is God giving the Bible to Habakkuk. God has revealed himself. That's the only way that we can know God. That's why we read this book on a daily basis. That's why we study this book together in small groups. We study it in discipleship. We study it in our leadership meetings. We study it on Sunday mornings. We love this book because it is God revealing himself to us. There's no other way to know God. How else are we going to know God? We can know about him through creation, just like we can know about the, the president of the United States through seeing pictures of him or through hearing uh, things that he has said before. But you can't actually know him personally until he comes to your house and he speaks to you about himself. He discloses information about himself. You can only know about him if you're far away from him. The only way that we can know God is if God draws near to us and discloses information about himself to us. And that's what God does here. That's why 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says this, No prophecy, no uh, word of God was ever made by an act of our human will. It's not humans writing this book, uh, giving us a revelation of who they think God is. This is humans being carried along, as Peter says, men moved by the Holy Spirit, speaking from God. God speaks, man records it, and gives it to us. That's what we have. This is God's revelation of himself to us. This book is not man-made. There are so many people that think that this book is man-made or compiled by men or decided by men. It's not. This is God speaking to us. So God says, record the vision. I'm giving you a vision. God is speaking his word. It's from God, not from man. Second reality of God's word. It's preserved. It doesn't pass away. It, it is preserved and it does not pass Away, He says, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets. Tablets of stone, more than likely. There's a couple reasons for this. Tablets of stone, number one, because uh, it's durable. It's going to be able to last on into the future. And God's going to say this prophecy, it's not going to happen for a number of years. You're going to have to wait for it. So I want to make sure that there's something that will last through generations so that the people that go beyond you, that go after you, come after you, Habakkuk, they can read this as well. So God knows, I want my word in this time and space to carry on through future generations. So I'm going I'm to give it to you, Habakkuk, and then I'm going to tell you to write it down in a way that it's preserved. And God's done that throughout the entirety of his word. It's all preserved. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, 
Jesus says, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. God's word isn't going to just cease to exist. Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. My words will never pass away. I will preserve them. This in theology, we call it the doctrine of preservation, that God will preserve his word. Obviously, if this book contains the revelation of God himself, and he desires that we would know who he is so that we could understand what salvation is, then he's going to preserve this book for future generations. He's not going to let it go out of existence. By the way, so many cults today arise from that narrative, a false narrative that somehow we lost God's word, somehow through a game of telephone, we lost what God wanted to tell us. And so therefore we have to have new prophets, quote unquote. We have to have new people that rise up, that hear from God, quote unquote, and that write down a new book, a new revelation because the old revelation was lost. That's not true. That's not true biblically. That's not true. Even in this verse, he says to Habakkuk, I want you to write it in a way that it will be preserved. God preserves his word. So it's not from man, it's from God, and God will preserve it. Number three, the third reality of God's word is that it's clear, not confusing. God's word is clear, not confusing. This is, again, in theology, we call this the perspicuity of scripture, that it is knowable, it is understandable. Are there difficult parts? Sure, we're even studying through one of them uh, on our Sunday mornings when we get back together again. We're gonna start diving back into Revelation. There are difficult things in that book. There's difficult things. I love, uh, Peter talks about Paul's writings in 2 Peter, he says, hey, Peter has, or Paul has written down some things that are hard to understand. They're hard to understand. Paul's written things that even, even I don't understand, Peter says. I love that. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing down the word of God, says, hey, some of Paul's things are hard to understand. So it doesn't mean that the entirety of the Bible is easily understandable. That's why we have people that are writing about the Bible, preaching on the Bible. That's why we do these things together. There are certain places that are a little tricky. But the reality is, number one, the tricky places in Scripture don't have anything to do with salvation. They're not salvific passages. They're not primary salvific passages. Salvation is clear in the Bible. It's easy to understand. Again, cults will try and twist that. It's really easy to understand what salvation is in the Bible. And then secondly, the places that are tricky can be explained with a little bit of work. You have to do a little bit of work, but you can understand them. But the bottom line is the entire storyline of the Bible can be understood. My my kids understand it. My kids, Ethan understands the storyline of the Bible. He's read parts of the Bible. We read the Bible to him. We read theology to him. He understands those things. And guys, you know, I've had several people tell me, every time you bring an analogy of your kids that's going to have a a hint of negativity to it, it always seems to be Ethan. Some of the comments in the YouTube say, poor Ethan, he's another negative example. I love my son. My firstborn son, Ethan, is just a treasure to my heart. Yes, he struggles with things. He, he loves bugs. He loves them so much. Sometimes he wants to eat them. He, he runs into walls sometimes just to see what will happen. This kid that does these crazy things can understand this book. It's clear. It's not confusing. And look at what God says to Habakkuk. Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets so that, write it down, so that the one who reads it may run. The, run, the one who reads it may run. This is speaking of two specific things. Number one, of a prophet running, carrying that message, running it to the neighboring towns, the neighboring cities. The prophet is going to those places to say, thus saith the Lord. God has spoken. Here is clear revelation from God. Jeremiah 23 verse 21 says this about prophets. This is a a typical analogy that's used of a runner taking the message of God to people. But it's not just the prophet It's also the one who reads it. So it's the one who writes it and reads it to people. That's the prophet, the one who writes it down and reads it to people. But it's also given to people. And the one who receives it from the prophet, and they read through it, they can run. They can do something about it. Notice what God is saying. I want my word to be given in such a way that it can be comprehended. It's comprehensible. It can be understood so that the one who receives it and reads through it will be able to do something. Run. Run away from judgment. Run in repentance to God. Run to him. Like Proverbs 18 verse 10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe. That's why God says, I want you to write it down in such a way that anyone can read this and can do something about it. God's word is from God, not from man. God's word is preserved, not passing away. It's clear, it's not confusing. God wants it to be understood. 
It's not some mystical, magical book that if you don't have some PhD in doctrine and theology, you can't understand it. That's not true. This book can be understood by anyone. One author says it this way, God's vision compromises faithful and true testimony that doesn't lie or deceive. Because the vision's written down, it serves as inscribed testimony. God's world is ordered and is comprehensible. Therefore, the faithful who hear and read the vision can trust God, can trust his word, and can trust the way that he's operating in the world. They can rely on the message of God. But it doesn't end there. Number four, uh, speaking of the principle of God's word being trustworthy and true, point number four, God's word will never fail. It will never fail. I love verse three. The vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Now notice, why does God have to say it won't fail? The reason why he says it's not going to fail is because it's going to look like it's failing. It's going to look like it's taking so long that God has just forgotten his promise and he has left us. He's failed us. That's why God says, Habakkuk, you need to know and you need to tell this to people. My word won't fail. Maybe you're in a season right now where it just looks like God's left you alone. God, where are you? You've disappeared. What are you doing? And God would say, hey, there are moments where it looks like it has the appearance that I'm gone or it has the appearance that I failed you, but I'm not gone and I'm not going to fail you. I'm not going to fail you. This is like Abraham. You remember God gave him several promises, and it just took forever and ever and ever for those promises to happen. One of them is having a son, a promised son. And Abraham says, first of all, I'm really old. My wife's really old. We've never been able to have kids. This isn't going to work out. God says it's going to work out. And so they, they try to have kids. They try to have kids. Years and years go by, and he says it's not working. So he ends up sleeping with his servant, his maidservant, to conceive a child who he declares, this must be the promised child. But that's not what God said. God said, I have a promise. It's going to come through the line of you and Sarah, not you and Hagar. But Abraham struggled to believe it. And so he says, maybe, maybe you've failed, God. I have to take matters into my own hands. It's always going to leave you in a worse place than if you had just trusted God. So God says, the vision is for an appointed time yet to come. It's in the future and it will hasten towards the goal. It's heading that way. Maybe from our perspective, it's creeping that way. It's not hastening that way, but it's moving that direction. He's not going to fail us because he's not lying. God's word won't fail because God's word comes from God himself, and God himself cannot lie. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man he should lie. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, God cannot lie. Even when it seems like he's delaying or waiting his ultimate word will not fail. It won't fail. Notice the exact timeline isn't given to Habakkuk. God just says it's going to happen in the future. Timeline, we don't know. It will happen. Only God knows the timeline, and all the speculation in the world can't provide a firm timeline. So what do you do? You have to trust. Faith means trusting God rather than relying upon a specific timeline. God says it's going to happen in the future. Will you trust me? God's word won't fail. Finally, number five. Under God's word being trustworthy. Number one, it's from uh, God, not from man. It's God made, not from man. Number two, it is uh, an understandable, it's clear, it's concise. Uh, it's preserved by God. Preserved, it's for the purpose of going forth to future generations. Number four, it won't fail. And finally, number five, it will always come to pass. It will always come to pass. This is the end of verse three. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. I love this verse. This, this section of Habakkuk is my favorite section of Habakkuk. Maybe the end is my second, very close second favorite. But I love this verse. Though it tarries, so it's slow in happening. Habakkuk, I'm giving you my word. I'm giving you a promise. And it's going to take a while to happen. But though it tarries, wait for it. It's going to take a while. It certainly will come. It won't delay. Wait, you just told me, God, it's going to delay, and then you say it's not going to delay. What are you saying, God? Well, from a human perspective, it looks like this is tearing. It looks like this is delaying. But from God's perspective, the certainty of the fulfillment of this promise makes it so that God says it's not going to delay. 
I know when it's going to happen, and it's happening quickly. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We might think he's acting slowly or not acting at all. And God says to Habakkuk, man, it looks like that way to you, but it's not going to delay. It's going to rush towards you. It's going to happen. Babylon, the, the prophecy here is that Babylon's going to come in and destroy Judah in 586 B.C., but the second part of this prophecy that we're going to look at next week, these five curses that God pronounces over Babylon, is that God is going to destroy Babylon. Habakkuk says, hey, you were supposed to discipline Judah, but I don't like the way you're doing it, and God says, hey, I am going to destroy that people group. I'm going to discipline Judah, and then the the, uh, instrument that I use to discipline Judah, I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to punish them. That's not going to happen until 539 B.C., so God is going to use Babylon to take captive Judah in 586. And then in 539, decades later, God's going to bring in the Medo-Persians. This is Daniel chapter 5. God's going to bring in the Medo-Persians and they're going to take over Babylon. They're going to destroy Babylon. It's going to take decades, Habakkuk, for this to ultimately come to pass. But you can wait. You can trust. The first life-altering, destiny-changing reality is that this book is trustworthy and it won't fail you. Because there's there's realities in this book that have yet to be fulfilled. Jesus is coming back, and he's not here right now. He's coming back again, and we're waiting for him. We're waiting because he's going to come back like a thief in the night, right? We're waiting because we don't know when that day or hour is. It's pointless to speculate, but we trust. Though it looks like he's delaying, he's not going to delay. There are promises in this book that have yet to be fulfilled. And so we are in the exact same boat as Habakkuk, waiting, wondering, watching. So brothers and sisters, this book is yours to cling to, to have an anchor for your soul, to know without a shadow of a doubt that God has revealed himself to you. He's giving you everything pertaining to life and godliness. Don't turn anywhere else. Turn to this book. Dive into this book and trust it with all of your heart. If you do that, your life will be forever changed. That's the first life-altering reality. God's word is trustworthy and cannot fail. The second life-altering reality is in verse 4. The second life-altering reality is that righteousness comes through faith alone. Righteousness comes through faith alone. Only through faith can we be made righteous. This is verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, that's speaking both of Uh, Babylon, who is uh, exalting themselves, puffing themselves up, saying we're better than all these neighboring nations and countries. But it's also speaking of Judah because they were also prideful. So it's, yes, specifically about one, but then it kind of broadens out to everybody. The proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now, we're going to look in depth about the proud one in the next point. But right now, I just want to zero in on the second part of verse 4. The righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. What's the alternative to that? In the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations, look at what the proud person does. His soul's not right within him. What does a proud person do who does not have faith? Maybe they're going to say, I'm in control. Maybe they're going to say, I can save myself. If God doesn't show up, it's okay. I'll be fine. Maybe they just join in the bad that's going on. Forget trying to be righteous. I'm just going to join in with the bad. Maybe they surrender the culture around them. Maybe they just pretend everything's okay. They turn a blind eye to everything. Proud people, their soul is not right within them. So the answer to all these questions that Habakkuk is raising before God is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? And that's why God says the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. This is the entire message of Habakkuk. This is the theme verse of the whole book. And there's two ways that this is to be understood. There's two ways that we are to understand the righteous will live by faith. First is in the immediate context with the struggles that are going on. Second is in the broader context with salvation. So this is dealing immediately with what Habakkuk is saying. I don't understand. I'm struggling here. I I, I can't understand what's going on. God, what are you doing? And Habakkuk is told by God, God, will you trust, or Habakkuk, will you trust me? Habakkuk, trust me. So in the immediate context, the righteous will live by faith means that if you truly love God, you're going to trust him. Even in these hard moments, you're going to trust him. 
But we're going to see the New Testament writers expand that out to say it's not just in trials that we trust God. It's not just in trials that we need faith. It's for the entirety of our salvation. So let's look at those together, the struggles in life and the salvation in life. Number one, the struggles. In the immediate context, Habakkuk is confused. He's frustrated. He doesn't know what's going on. And God says to him, trust me. I, I just told you in these first opening verses that I'm trustworthy, that you can trust me. I told you that it's not going to delay. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to bring about my promises. So will you put that into practice, Habakkuk, and will you trust me? That's what God's saying. Here's my word. Now will you trust me? Will you trust me? I don't know about you, but I've seen in this period of the coronavirus, I've seen kind of two categories of people. There's frustrated people about what's going on, and then there's really frustrated people about what's going on, right? seems like those are the only two categories. Faith is for when you're frustrated. Faith is for these moments when you're frustrated. And right now, in heaven, in the presence of Jesus, no one is frustrated. No one is frustrated. And so God says, will you trust me? Don't be frustrated by what's going on. Will you trust me in faith? Faith snores because faith knows that God's in control. God, you are in control of what's going on, so I don't have to be. The righteous live by faith. This means that we're not going to have all the answers. We rarely do, but we trust the one who does have all the answers. God, you are in control, and you have all the answers, so I can just trust you. We're never going to have all the answers for all of life's dark moments. Maybe one day we'll know. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us that we will know even as we are known by God, but maybe there are things that we'll never understand. But for now, in this moment, God is asking Habakkuk, will you trust me? Just trust me. How are we to do that? Well, we're to trust what we read in the word in this book until we see it happening in the world, right? That's what God's telling Habakkuk. Habakkuk, trust me. I'm giving you my word and I'm going to act in the world, but just trust me. Faith doesn't have a plan B, it's not saying, well, I'll fall back on a secondary option. It's plan A all the way. I'm going to trust God. And faith is not blind faith. It's not blind faith. It's not saying, well, I'll just blindly follow God. No, God's given us his word. And he says, follow this. I've given you evidence. We see this all over the places uh, in scripture where God gives evidence of who he is and of what he's doing so that you can trust him. You can follow him. You can believe him whether it's the miracles that he's doing in the New Testament to ground uh, his, his comments about himself. What is he claiming about himself? He's claiming to be Messiah, son of God, come in the flesh, God, very God in human flesh. It's pretty unbelievable to make that claim. And so he backs it up by miracles. He backs it up by power and wonder-working miracles that there's no way that anybody but God could do these things. You see this also in the upper room, when Thomas is saying, I, I, don't, I can't believe that Jesus, who I, I know is crucified, I can't believe that he was raised from the dead. I can't believe that. Until I see him and until I place my hand in his side, in the, the nail imprints, I'm not going to believe. Jesus doesn't show up and say, how dare you, Thomas? Jesus shows up and says, here's the evidence. I'll give you evidence so that you can believe. We saw this when we studied the book of Judges with Gideon, with so many of the, of the judges who are called by God to do miraculous things, to do amazing wonders. And they're struggling with faith. God does not say, how dare you struggle with faith? God says, let me give you things to boost and to bolster your faith. So it's not blind faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's evidence that gives you a conviction that you can trust God. One way to understand faith is juxtapose it with sight. The righteous will live by faith. So what does it look like to live by sight? Sight's what we see. Faith is what we know God sees. Sight's what we see, faith is what we know God sees. We know God sees, he knows. Instead of I'll believe it when I see it, we should say I'm going to believe until I see it. I'm going to keep on believing. I'm going to keep on having faith until I see it. Faith doesn't mean that everything will be okay. Faith means that you'll be okay. Faith is trusting what God says while you wait to see what he does. Faith keeps trusting that light is coming while pressing forward in pitch black darkness. Faith takes a truckload of your burdens and dumps them onto Jesus so that you don't have to carry them anymore. Faith trusts in a God that you don't always understand. That's okay. What you do understand, you cling to, and therefore you know you can place your trust in him. You don't have to fully understand. Faith presses into a relationship with God, even if there's no resolutions to your trials. That's what we're going to see. Habakkuk's transformation leads into a place where he says, hey, even though everything's falling apart around me, I'm still going to have faith and trust God. I'm going to cling to him. That's what faith is. 
we tend to think of faith like Popeye. You remember the old Popeye cartoons? Popeye eating spinach, right? He eats spinach, muscles get huge, and he's able to beat people up. We tend to think that's what faith is like. Uh, I'm struggling in a moment. I need faith. I take faith. I can do this. It's not what faith is. Faith isn't God giving us more strength. Faith is depending on God's strength. It's not saying, uh, we've we've said it before, like a a pinata, right? The pinata of faith that we hit and we get strength and now we can uh, go through whatever trials we need to go through. No, faith is fully relying and depending upon God saying, I have no strength. I have no strength, so God's going to be my strength. And how does God build our faith? By putting you in trials to show you that you don't have any strength. This is the point of trials. This is why James tells us that we can rejoice in trials, that we can consider it all joy because faith is producing something, or the trials are producing something in us, namely faith. They're growing our faith. They're showing us that we are not uh, able to rely on our own strength. We're not powerful enough on our own. So faith is not an extra burst of power so you can do something. It's total dependence upon God. It's an admission that you have no power and therefore you cry out to God for help. That's in the temporary. When God tells Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith, God is saying, in the moment of this trial, in the moment of suffering, in the moment of this difficulty, will you trust me? Again, please, please mark it down. He's not rebuking Habakkuk for any lack of trust. He's saying, keep on believing. This is exactly what Jesus says uh, to uh, Jairus. Remember when Jairus goes to Jesus in Mark chapter and says, uh, I, I need help. My daughter is dying. She's at the point of death. And if you don't come quickly, I will lose her. And Jesus says, I'll go with you. He goes with you, meets the woman with the issue of blood and stops, talks to her, heals her. And then while he is moving on to Jairus's house, Jairus's officials come out, the servants come out and they say, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter has died. Remember what Jesus says. Don't stop believing. Keep on believing. You came to me because you had faith, and I know that this has put you in an even harder situation. This is even more difficult. But Jairus, don't stop. Don't stop. Keep on believing. That's what God is telling Habakkuk. You came to me in the first place because you had faith, Habakkuk. You came to me because you had faith. Don't let that faith go. Keep on believing. But... It's not just in the immediate, in the temporal, in this moment, in trials. That's the immediate context. But what the New Testament does is it quotes these verses, it quotes these words, and it uses these words to broaden it out to how we are saved. So we've moved from struggles now to salvation. Let's look at salvation and what the righteous will live by faith means in the context of salvation. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, and in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, Romans 1, 17, Galatians 3, 11, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. The first two, obviously, by Paul. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. If Paul wrote Hebrews, then Paul's using this in all three of these places. I just want to read a couple. We'll go to the Galatians passage, but I want to give you a flavor for how Paul is using these verses. Uh, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16, many of you have memorized this verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man will live by faith. There's the quotation, the righteous man will live by faith. So if you love the book of Romans, which many of us love that book, that's one of the most important books in all of the Bible, It's one of the most theologically dense and rich books in the Bible. It's one of those books that you ask pastors, if you could take one book of the Bible onto a desert island, and all you had is this one book, many pastors say Romans. Romans chapter 8, right? The Mount Everest of the whole Bible, that beautiful chapter of the security that we have in God's love for us through the gospel. The entirety of the book of Romans is founded on Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The entirety of Paul's argument, he adopts this one single phrase. It's literally three words in Hebrew as the basis for constructing his entire letter to the Romans. This one verse is the foundation for the whole point of the book of Romans, the whole letter. So if you love the book of Romans, you love Habakkuk. The second place that 
Paul uses this. If, if Paul is the author of Hebrews, is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. It's another direct quotation. And you guys know, remember Hebrews chapter 10 obviously comes before Hebrews chapter 11. And then Hebrews chapter 11 is that hall of fame of faith. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. So there's a direct quotation of this is what it looks like to be saved by faith alone. And this is how faith sanctifies and, and continually sets you apart unto God. And then obviously Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You cannot be pleasing to God apart from faith. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. I want you to see this one. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul is writing, this is probably the first uh, letter, uh, one of the first, if not the first New Testament letter that he wrote. The gospel that says you can do nothing to save yourself, God does all the work for you, had been received by this church in Galatia, and then they started moving back to Judaism. They started saying, well, we were saved by grace. We were saved by grace through faith alone. That's, that's how we were saved, but now we're going to be sanctified by our works. Faith saved us. Work's going to keep us saved. So Paul writes this letter. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before whose eyes Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. The only thing I want to find out from you, did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So were you saved by works or by faith? Well, obviously you're saved by faith. So then are you so foolish, verse 3? Having been begun by the Spirit, now can you be perfected by the flesh? That's what the church in Galatia was saying. We were saved by faith, but now we're going to be sanctified, perfected, and glorified by our works. Paul says that's foolishness. You were begun. The, 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 the race of faith and, and salvation was begun by the work of God alone. So to your sanctification, so to your glorification. Did you suffer, verse 5, so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works of miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham... This is another quotation in the Old Testament. Believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Abraham says, I believe you, and I'm going to follow you. And that was reckoned to him. That was accounted to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law... Uh, are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And no one, you can know that, no one is justified by the works of the law. You cannot be righteous by doing good works. Why? It's evident. Because, and here's the quotation, the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous man will live by faith. Righteousness comes through faith, not through works. Works don't get you saved. Works don't bring about righteousness. If we're sinful people, doing good works can't uh, cleanse us of our bad works. So Paul says there's no way to be saved apart from faith in God doing the saving work himself. There's no way to be saved. So Paul, if he wrote Hebrews, he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, three times in the New Testament to say as the grounds of the entirety of his doctrine of justification, we're going to talk about this, his doctrine of justification, it's all coming from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. By the way, just a side note, very helpful side note, I run into people who say uh, there's this strange dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people even say that there's a different God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament, and they just divorce those two. There's this huge chasm between the two. Uh, just the very fact that Paul is building the entire argument of multiple books in the Bible from a book in the Old Testament, from a verse in the Old Testament, proves to us that that's, that's a false dichotomy to say that the Old Testament, New Testament, two different, two different uh, gods or two different ways God is speaking. No, they're, they're cohesive in exactly the same way of what God is saying and how God brings about salvation. There was a rabbi in the third or fourth century who suggested that all of the 613 precepts in the Torah, so the Torah, five books of Moses, has 613 commands in them. And he suggested that King David reduced 613 commands in Psalm 15 to 11. 
So he takes 613 and reduces them to 11. Then Micah, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, reduces those 11 to 3. Isaiah, in Isaiah 56, verse 1, reduces those 3 to 2. Amos reduces it in Amos 5, verse 4, to one command. And Habakkuk, in three words, sums up the entire message of the Bible. The righteous will live by faith. Three Hebrew words sums up the entire message of the Bible. Now, is that, is that an overstatement? As I said earlier, I, I believe that these three realities, these three principles are life-changing. They're eternal, destiny-altering uh, realities. Is it an overstatement to say that these three words in the Hebrew text summarize the entire message of the Bible? I, I don't think so. I don't think that's an overstatement. Why? Well, let's flesh out what these words are saying. These words start with the principle and the presupposition that God's a holy God. The Bible tells us God is a holy God. There is no sin in him. He's completely removed from his creation. He made us. He's not like us as a created being. He's completely set apart. He is to be worshiped and exalted and obeyed and followed. He is holy. And he makes man in a beautiful display of his love that we're going to talk about at some point down the road regarding the Trinity. I want to I dive into this beautiful doctrine of the Trinity and show its application for our lives. One of the applications, God's a God of love and he, he begets the things that he loves. He makes these uh, angels, he makes these creatures, and then he makes humans. And he loves us, he wants a relationship with us. And we choose in our sinfulness to say, no, we don't want that relationship with you. So we go our own way. God is a holy God, and therefore he demands that holiness be the only thing that's accepted in heaven. You cannot get into heaven if you're a sinful person. In order to be in a right relationship with God, you have to be holy. That's the way that he made Adam and Eve, in a right relationship with him, holy, beautiful, uh, reconciled relationship. There's no impurity. There's no sin. But they choose to sin, just like you and I choose to sin. And therefore, because we are sinful people, we cannot be good enough to get to God on our own. We are sinners. We have broken his law. We have disobeyed commandments. He, though he desires to be with us, we don't desire to be with him. So our only hope is actually our biggest problem. God being our only hope is actually our biggest problem, that God is holy and we're not. We talked about this last week. How can a righteous God forgive sinners? How can a righteous God say to sinful people, I'm allowing you entrance and access into heaven. Those sinful people have to not be sinful. That's the only way that he can do that. But how can he do that? He can't just pardon them and say, I forgive you, you're, you're fine, you can come in. He can't play favorites. He can't grade on a curve, as some people say. He's holy. He's a just God. He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. It is God who acts as the judge, and he pronounces through the work that Jesus does for us that a man or woman can be justified and free of all of the obligations to the law incurred by their sin and their guilt if they would place their faith in Jesus. God sent Jesus so that Jesus would fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, uh, obey perfectly, never sin, and then die on the cross in our place, bearing our punishment. How can sinners go to heaven? Because their punishment has been paid. You either will pay for your own sins in hell for all of eternity, or you can have your sins paid for by Jesus because God the Father poured out his righteous wrath on Jesus so that you don't have to experience it. And then Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, and he offers us a free gift of eternal life. We talked about this last week. He offers it to us. It is a gift. By the way, I was in a conversation with somebody recently and they were saying they don't like God, they don't like the gospel, they don't like the idea of following after God, they don't, they don't believe any of it. And the reason why is because they think it's ridiculous to have to obey God in order for him to love you. And I said, you're right. That's ridiculous and it's impossible. That's not the gospel. The gospel does not say God's waiting up in heaven saying, will you just obey me and then I'll love you? The gospel says that we obey God. Yes, we do obey God, but we only obey because we have been loved by him. His love for us frees us to obey him. Once you understand the depravity of your own sin, the depth of your sinfulness, and you understand how lost you are and how in trouble you are with the God of the universe, and then you see that God has made a way for you no longer to be in trouble with him ever again, that makes you love him all the more. 
It makes you turn to him in faith. You trust his provision for you to be saved. You trust his provision for you to be forgiven. You cling to Jesus. You love him because he paid the debt that you could never pay. And if you love him, then you're going to keep his commandments. You're going to obey, but you never obey to, to get love from God. I tell this to my kids all the time because we were, we were talking with some uh, friends uh, the reality that we grew up in church and somehow growing up in church, we, wa- we all walked away with the same thought that God will only love us when we do what's right, when we obey him. Somehow we all walked away with that. I know that we all went to Bible-believing churches, Bible-preaching churches, gospel-preaching churches, but it is innate in our, it's hardwired in our system to want to say, I can do something and then you'll be happy with me and then you'll love me and I will earn your love. My kids, it's hardwired in them. That's why over and over again, I tell my kids all the time, almost on a daily basis, do you get love from God? Does God love you because of what you can do for him? Or do you do things for him because he's already loved you? I want them to know that. I tell my kids, when I was holding you in my arms, the moment that you were born and I held you in my arms, did I look at you and say, well, I wonder if I'm going to love you. I guess we'll just have to wait to see what you can do and how you can perform for me, and then I'll decide whether I'm going to love you or not. No, my love for my kids will never change. They had done nothing. They were just screaming and crying, and they brought my wife a whole lot of pain. That's all they had done. And I hold them in my arms, and I say, I love you, with tears streaming down my eyes. I love you. Why? Because of what they can offer me? No, because they are mine. Because they're mine. When they disobey, does it make me sad? Absolutely. When they obey, does it make me happy? Absolutely. But their disobedience and their obedience does not change my love for them at all. At all. The same is true for the Father. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, then he declares over you, you're my son, you're my daughter. Therefore, it's not how you perform that makes him love you or not love you. Jesus did all the work so that he can just lavish, the Father can just lavish love upon you. This is the doctrine of justification. Big word, fancy word, justification. It means to be declared righteous. You are not righteous. Patrick is not righteous. I'm a sinful person deserving of punishment for my sins, and yet God justifies me. He declares me righteous. He says, you are no longer guilty, and even more than that, you are now innocent and perfectly righteous. Why? Because of anything that I could offer God? No, because of God's work through Jesus Christ on the cross, on the earth, uh, winning our perfect record of righteousness on the cross, dying in our place through the resurrection, conquering sin and death. It is not, in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it is not that the righteous will live by good works or the righteous will live by penance. You will gain righteousness through penance or through contrition or through trying harder. It's faith. And again, faith is not just some uh, way to, to get strength or way to uh, just uh, like Popeye grow muscles. Faith is also not just some mental assent, saying, I agree with those facts. We already said it. The demons believe. They, they have faith in God that he is who he claims to be. Faith goes beyond just agreeing with mental uh, assents or with facts about who God is. It goes beyond that to agreeing and then treasuring and cherishing God, loving him. That's why 1 Corinthians 16 says, without love, if you do not have love for God, you are going to be accursed. If you don't love God, why would you want to be in heaven? Heaven's all about God. So if you don't love God, then you are going to be sent to a place where not only you don't have to be around God anymore because you don't love him in the first place, but number two, your not not having love for him will be punished. Your disobedience towards him will be judged. Faith isn't just some mental assent or agreement. It's a complete reliance upon and dependence upon God. It's very interesting, the Hebrew word in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, for faith is the word uh, enuma. Uh, it's the word for uh, faith, and it's used elsewhere. Very interesting, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 12. Remember the passage where Moses is holding his hands up, and he's getting tired, and he has people that come alongside him to help hold his arms up? It says, when Moses' hands were steady or firm, that's that same word for faith. You'll see it in your Bible as steady or firm, but that's the word for faith. Why? Because you're, you're placing your faith firmly in something that is solid ground, not in your own works. You're saying, I'm going to trust in solid ground. My works are sinking sand, but I'm going to trust in solid ground. 
I'm going to be steadied by somebody else. So justification, Jesus dies for you, and then you look to Jesus' death as your only hope of forgiveness, your only hope of being made right with God. That's what faith is. Faith is resting in the fact that your identity and everything that you are is rooted in Jesus and his work for you and not in your work for him. And even faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that. Why? Because our hearts bent, my hearts bent toward myself. My flesh is so powerful that I need Jesus in me through his spirit in order to look to Jesus outside of me to treasure him because I want to declare that I've done the work. I want to declare that I'm good enough. The Father counts me righteous because I'm in Jesus by faith, not because of any good works that I have done. And by the way, we keep on doing that. We'll live, right? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous will live, will continually live. It's not just faith to save you. It's faith to sanctify. It's faith to glorify you. You're never not depending and relying upon God. Man, we struggle with this. Every single human being is born with an allergy to somebody else getting the glory and not us, right? We're allergic to other people getting glory and getting credit and not us. That's why we don't like the gospel inherently. We don't like the fact that God's going to get all the glory because he does all the work and we don't do any of it. John Calvin said it this way, it is faith which strips us of all of our arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God that we may seek salvation from him alone which would otherwise be far removed from us. Us. That's faith. Faith is trusting in God alone. And it strips us of all of our pride, all of our confidence in ourselves, all of our confidence in our good works. Lots of religions. I mean, every other religion other than Christianity says that you're justified by faith plus something. There's a lot of religions that will say, yeah, you're justified by faith, but it's not just faith alone by itself. You're justified by faith, and then you have to do something. You have to do a good work. You have to pray a certain prayer. You have to do something. Only Christianity says that you're justified by faith and by faith alone. So turn back to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. God says to Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. They'll live by faith in the moments of trials to say, God, I know that you're working something I couldn't possibly comprehend, but I'm going to trust you. Even if I don't know, I'm going to trust. Even if I don't know everything you're doing, I'm going to trust because you are in control but broaden that out through the entirety of the rest of the Bible. And we see that what God is saying to Habakkuk is, in order to be made right, in order to have a reconciled relationship with a holy God that you've offended by your sin, you need him to do the work for you, and you just receive that as a free gift. You don't do any work. You don't, you don't spit in his face by saying, I can accomplish my own salvation by myself. You say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. What's the alternative? The alternative is our third life-altering reality. So number one, the word of God is trustworthy and it won't fail. Number two, righteousness, salvation, God justifying you comes by faith alone. You don't work to get yourself saved. And the third reality, the third life-changing reality is really the opposite of point number two. Self-reliance leads to destruction. Self-reliance, pride leads to destruction. What God is going to say in verse 4 is the proud one, their soul is not right within them. And then he goes on to describe that in verse 5. He says, furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man, the proud man. Wine betrays them. Strong drink uh, evokes this expression of bloated self-esteem that's inherent in a sinful mind and a sinful heart. So God's describing the Babylonians, but he's describing anyone who has a prideful heart here. He says they don't stay at home. They want to go out and conquest. The aim of conquest is to find and expand their own glory, their own settlements. They can keep multiplying. However, Babylon, when they uh, enlarge their territory, they just, they're not satisfied to keep on enlarging. That's why he says they're like Sheol, like the place of death. That's never satisfied. People keep dying. So it's an uh, analogy to figure speech to say that death is never satisfied because people just keep dying. They gather themselves to himself, all nations, and they collect to himself all peoples. They say, I am God, right? I own everyone. I am the authority over everyone. But contrasts in verse 4, the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. You see the word but in verse 4? That means that the line above is the contrast, the opposite of the line below. The line below, the righteous will live by faith. Righteous live by faith. So what's the opposite? God tells us what the opposite is. 
The opposite of uh, having faith is trusting in yourself, the proud person trusting in themselves. And then therefore, the opposite of righteousness being given to you is judgment being given to you. That's what we're going to look at next week, Lord willing. God says five different curses, different sets of woes over Babylon. And we're going to look at them because Babylon seems very similar to America. God's going to say things that it just looks like he's talking to America. We're going to ask, where are we in these specific curses, these woes? But here, God says to Habakkuk, the righteous live by faith, but the proudful person will ultimately come to destruction. They aren't given righteousness by God. They're given judgment by God. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but in the end that is the way of death. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25, There is a way that seems right to a man, again, but in the end it is the way of death. Proverbs 13, verse 15, I tell my kids this a lot. The way of the transgressor is hard. You want to be prideful? You want to say, I'm in control. I can do my own thing. I'm a law to myself. God will say, go ahead and try. And it is a very hard thing to live life without God. It's a very hard thing. Self-reliance doesn't look to be justified by somebody else. Self-reliance, we hear this all the time. People want to justify themselves. They don't want to uh, experience condemnation and judgment from others, so they want to say, I'm good enough. They want to justify themselves. Proudful, prideful people, proud people justify themselves. They say, I am a justification unto myself. So I don't need your approval because I'm good enough on my own. And what does God say? Their heart, their soul is not right within them. This is Matthew chapter 7 where God says, At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching. He says, look, you have two options. You can either build your life on a rock or you can build your life on sand. Sand is building your life on your own accomplishments, on your own abilities, on your own good works. It's seeking to justify yourself based off of what you have to offer God. And God says when the storm of judgment, the storm of life comes through, it's just going to destroy that house because it will not stand. But you have a rock that you can build on. In order to build on this rock, you have to renounce that you can't build on anything else. You have to be able to say, instead of being prideful and saying, I can do good work, I can justify myself, I don't need your help, God, you have to say, I am hopeless and helpless apart from God. Pride leads to destruction, self-reliance leads to destruction, but, but a humble person who's poor in spirit, who has nothing to offer God, says, I have nothing in my pockets, I, I've got nothing to give to you, and just comes to cling to the cross of Christ. Only that person can build their house on that rock. And when the storm of God's judgment comes, it stands because they're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Can I just ask this morning, where are you? Would you declare yourself as a prideful person who's trusting in your own goodness, your own ability? Maybe you're saying, I trust God, but I'm also going to do things. I'm going to earn his favor. God would say that he's still opposed to you until you renounce self-reliance and trust in him alone. He's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this is every single day. The righteous will live by their faith on a continual basis. Every day you're saying, I'm needy, I'm needy, I'm broken, and I need help. We're never going to be beyond God's grace. So what about you? The righteous will live by faith. What are we tempted to live by? What are you and I tempted to live by? We're tempted to live by sight. The righteous will live by sight. We want to be able to say, I can live by sight. Maybe it's penance or good works, or maybe it's moral rel- relativity. The, the righteous, the good people will, will live by moral relativity. Actually, I'm not as bad as you think I am. I'm not as bad as God declares me to be. But here's the reality. Whatever we are in justifies us. Whatever we cling to for hope justifies us. This is why the the doctrine of the union with Christ, being in Christ, Paul says this over and over again. This is so important because whatever you are in is what justifies you. And we could say whatever you love the most is what justifies you. Maybe it's your academics. Maybe you seek to be known for your uh, academic prowess, for your knowledge, for your abilities. Well, you're in academics, and therefore you're going to go around telling people, look at how justified I am through what I know, through what I've accomplished in my academic field. Maybe it's your job, maybe it's your money, maybe it's accomplishments, maybe it's your family, maybe it's parenting. My kids are going to be my justification. Look at how awesome I've raised and trained my kids. They are my justification. Yes, I'm a bad person. Yes, I'm a sinner, but look at them. I'm not as bad as you think I am. And if you find yourself justified by those things, you're in those things. Those are the things that are going to give you value, credit, and fulfillment. Those are your justifications. 
But my friends, those justifications won't last on into eternity. That's why I love that question that we, we asked several weeks ago when we were just celebrating Easter. What is our only hope in life and in death? What's our only hope in life and in death? If you have a hope in life, let's say parenting, you want your kids to be your justification that you're actually a good person, that when they die or when you die, that's gone. That justification is gone. So it's hope for you in life, but it will not be hope for you in death. That's why if we have a hope that is only a hope for us in life and it's not a hope for us in death as well, then it's no genuine hope for us in life at all. We need a hope in life and in death. And the only hope that we have is Jesus Christ being our good standing, being our righteousness. There is no greater cure for the sin-sick soul than realizing we're justified by faith. Justification grounds God's love for us in the finished work of Jesus and not in our ability to perform, to obey, or even our ability to sense that God loves us. Martin Luther said it this way, the love of God does not first discover, but creates what is pleasing to him. The love of God does not first look and see, oh, you have what's pleasing in, in you. For me, what, what I am pleased by, you have it, so I'm going to love you. No, the love of God creates in us what's pleasing to him through justification, through giving us Jesus' righteousness, and then says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You're my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. In other words, God doesn't find love or faith in us for him. He creates, us, creates love and faith in us for him as we look to Jesus Christ alone. We can never begin with ourselves. So as we finish our time together this morning, I just want to free you. These are three life-altering realities. You don't have to have authority in yourself. You can look to God's word as your authority. He's trustworthy. He's clear. And it's going to come to pass. And then you can look to him for righteousness. And you can renounce self-reliance and say, God, I have nothing good in me to bring to you. And I just cling to you. But can I just free you this morning? If you trust in Jesus Christ by faith alone for salvation, sometimes, a lot of the times, we're tempted to look inward at our faith as a grounds for our justification. I have good faith. I have big faith. I have strong faith. Looking at your faith will depress you. It will depress you. Because our faith is constantly moving up and down. It's waning, it's waxing, it's strong, it's weak. Looking to Jesus frees you. We're declared righteous because of Jesus' blood, not because of the energy of our faith. So if you feel that your faith is weak this morning, run to Jesus. He will hold you. And if you feel and you can see and you can honestly own up to the fact that you don't have any faith in God, you've never trusted him alone for salvation. You still trust in something to be your justification. And today is the day to look to him for salvation. Cling to him and let every good work that you've ever done go and say, Jesus, you and you alone are the rock upon which I will build my life. Father, we ask that you would do that work in and through us. We need your help. We need your divine assistance to see uh, to love you, to know that you are for us. You are working for us. You love us and you sent Jesus to be our righteousness. And so in the moments that we feel that our faith is weak and won't stand, we cling to you. In the moments when we feel that our faith is strong and secure and growing, we say thank you, but we don't rely on our faith and our, the strength of our faith. We cling to Jesus, and we cling to him alone for faith, for salvation, for righteousness. He is our hope in life and death, and we cling to him now. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.